Storymakers. I'm Elizabeth Stark, and this is Storymakers Show. And today on Storymakers Show, we're going to explore the art of not being subtle. That's right, people! And before we get started on that, Elizabeth, what are you working on? I am racing towards this marvelous deadline to get this new draft of my novel to my agent. And um, I have actually completed editing the hard copy, inputting the changes, going through all of her little notes, and I'm in the midst of kind of redoing these few crucial scenes that got entirely revamped. Um, and I'm very excited about it. Right on. How about you? Well, as always, I'm racing towards wrapping up the edit on my film. And... Um, Actually, today's topic stems from the next project that I'm starting to work on, so, which is, um, uh, it's my PTA heist. Oh, your next film, your next yes. so, script. Working on that script. And so, as I was going through that script, I was, you know, you have these different moments, and, you, and I thought it'd be interesting to explore, as you're going through and you have your great idea, uh, the idea of pushing it, right, sort of extending beyond uh, what your original idea is. And then from there, you know, I just realized the same notion goes for, for scene, for character, for everything. So well, I thought we could explore that. You know, it's interesting because um, a lot of what we talk about in Book in the Year is coming up for me in this, like, final, I mean, it's not the final revision in that, you know, Inshallah, there is no it such will, thing. Well, it'll hopefully it'll sell, and I will work with an editor, and I, you know. But I'm doing this, you know, 800th edition, you know, edit, and I'm really aware of the principles of Book in a Year. And people keep saying to me, "Can I use Book in a Year for revision?" And I, and absolutely, you can. And in fact, in some ways, it's easier. But how it ties into what you're talking about is, um, you, I'm really like each scene really has to do something for the story. Or doesn't belong. It might, you know, when you're writing initially, it's like, oh, this is showing me character and this is showing me the world and, you know, all those things. But those things have to happen simultaneously in a scene with the plot moving forward, with the story deepening, all of that. And so I guess I'm just saying, you know, when, once you start really crunching down on every scene hitting something, that's also moving away from kind of subtlety and, um, and into, you know what I mean? You sort of like hammering at your story, but it sounds bad. But it reads well. So in my case, it was interesting because I was really thinking uh, on the story. So I'm going to start with the story development level and thinking about um, that there's a difference between writing something that's really um, over the top versus exaggeration to heighten the conflict. And so at this story idea level, as I was writing my PTA heist process, like the idea is basically what I wanted to do was take um, some of my real life experience as someone who is a, you know, sits on a charter school board. And um, we're a public school. We do a lot of things that are very similar to public schools. And, um, and so my initial development of the idea really was 
not, it was pitting kind of two okay good people against each other in a way that wasn't really um, genre appropriate and wasn't really um, that interesting. Do you think it was, do you think it was your reluctance to make a true villain? No, I think what it was was that I was, you know, just do to do wouldn't this be fun, right? And thinking about my own real life experience. And, um, but when I took time and uh, reflected on what made, uh, what was the real issue at hand? The real issue at hand, honestly, is sort of how public schools are funded, <laughs> right? It's not, you know, is it fair for one school or another to have more money um, in this small, generally underfunded district? It's more about how do we get equity for all kids in the face of increased pressure to keep your head in college? That's really hilarious. It comedy. is so funny. Oh my God, I'm already laughing. Right? But the idea is, uh, you know, I went to a high school that was the smaller of two high schools in a in a somewhat rural district, and we definitely felt class pressure, and uh, that was reflected in how people treated us and how people talked about us and about our school. And at the same time, even though there was that class pressure between the two schools, even the larger of the two schools really isn't the issue, right? Right. And so, ah, so maybe part of it is, who is the bad guy? I think this is actually sort of deep in terms of politics, right? Like, I, I, I was in the cafe the other day, and this guy was, like, lecturing his girlfriend about the tax law, the new tax law. And, and, and he was just, and he was making all these points about how long it was and how whatever. And I just sort of wanted to say to him, like, you know, you keep working on her, right? Like. Because it just seemed like as if he could, if he could convince her who you know I was she didn't even, she was totally on board I mean she wasn't like yay the new tax law right it was just like it, and that's what we do in our lives like that's our drama is like let me convince you who totally agrees with me and has no power in the situation more about my point right um, right and so but by by taking the idea and pushing who, where the conflict was right so. Uh, it then opened up, okay, well, if this, if this, you know, group of people aren't the bad guys, who is? And the truth is, honestly, privatization of education is the bad guy, in my mind. And so, they, as soon as I did that, I not only had the ending, but I had a midpoint, which was that, I could then, because I had pushed the idea, I had a much better bad guy, and we could still take that idea that, that the argument was between these two smaller mm. schools, and the midpoint is actually you two are small fish in the face of this other institutional problem. That's a knife. This is a knife. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. So, and I, and I also love that your own process of discovering the story led you to the structural process in the story, right? And I think that's something, that's a great writing tip in general. And I just, I want to say also, I find that when people are really like, oh, I have this problem, like I've really painted myself into a corner and this desire to kind of 
leap over to an unpainted corner, right? And instead it's like, wait a minute, like you, this is actually a great opportunity because if you're struggling as the writer to figure out what's going to happen and how this is going to work out and it's really hard, it's going to mean the reader isn't going to just know right away, right? The reader is going to, you're going to have to come up with something clever that's going to make the reader, you know, excited. Yeah. So, uh, yay. Right. But again, kind of going back to that idea of exaggeration. So in this moment, it was exaggeration on the idea generation. I had taken a bad guy and pushed him through. And I think that, honestly, the time you take in your idea generation process to add exaggeration, and I'm using exaggeration, but really what I mean is to push it further. Um, and notice I didn't go from, you know, the other small school in this rural district is a bad guy to uh, Navy SEALs are coming to the prom, right? Because like, that wouldn't make sense. Right. So I can try those on as I'm trying to push the exaggeration, but there has to be some point at which you can identify what's more organic. Well, and that's what's nice about the word exaggeration, because it means to take what there, what is organically there and then make it bigger and stronger. And, and maybe more absurd or maybe more extreme or more violent or more whatever, but it's it's rooted in, you know, you're not exa exaggerating is not leaping over here and doing something absurdist. Apparently, we experience a number of ballet dancers who are also writers, but we always leap in from <laughs> uh, paint, unpainted corner to unpainted right? corner and leaping nonsensical. That's yes. why I go to bar. Yes. That's why I go to bar class because I need those muscles to leap around. Yes. Um, so that was like idea generation. That's where that sits, in, to my mind. In, in And in my process, I spend a fair amount of time mulling over ideas and creating what the ideas So, um, but it also is true as you're going through, as you kind of go down the level, but again, I think we often default to what seems realistic in our storytelling. So, uh, you know, you don't earn those subtle things by starting something. So when, you know, um, well, you know, I think about, you know, those, those, Moments in movies where you see someone and they make the smallest gesture and it feels like someone punched you in the chest. And it's because everything before that has made clear what the consequence of that gesture is and not in a subtle way. Like you don't start a film with someone raising an eyebrow and feel total loss. You so what I mean is, in the process of, of developing your scene, say, often you'll have that turn, right? You have a turn in your scene where you're sort of like someone goes in and they're expecting one thing, and then either they don't get it or they do get it, but the outcome is not what they expect, right? Um, and there is a lot of opportunity, I think, to push not what they expect. Would you say that's definitionally part of scene? It strikes me that way when you say it. Like, in a scene, there'll be some change and the outcome will not be expected. 
I would hope so. I think it's, in to some extent, if you know all of it, it's going to be, like, not that exciting. Right. And it may not be, for example, you're watching a deathbed scene. It, it may not be the person doesn't die, right? That, that there's something about it that is unexpected. Something about how it plays out. Something about how people react to it. Something about how it happened. Something. So there's some something unexpected. Absolutely. And that, I think that goes to why we're all sort of, um, as Lisa Pong says in her book, Wired for Story, why we're all wired for story. Because we have, because it teaches us how to handle the unexpected. Hmm. <laughs> you know, the whole educational aspect of story is, um, it's interesting to me. Because it does get into some dicey things since so much of the Western tradition is based still on morality myths. And so still educational but with a really strong uh bent. Um, right. Well I mean this is why story is dangerous and why it's powerful and um, why it's censored whether commercially or politically. Yeah. But back to exaggeration. Right. Um, See, you didn't expect our podcast to go there. Right. Well, that's what I love about it. I mean, actually, <laughs> when you were talking about ballet, I was thinking I had a conversation the other day with uh, at the dinner party we have that we go to uh, once every six months or year or what. Anyway, about, about ballet and how it's like a little bit boring <laughs> and I was saying you know in going with the kids to school field trips one of the things that's really interesting for me as somebody who does bar is that you when you look at what those people are doing it's so 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 hard like to stand on one toe and spin around on your leg for like minutes at a time is just almost impossible and yet the whole way they do it is to make it look like nothing and so there's something about, you know, a modern audience where it's like, I, I'm going to contradict you okay, about Okay, good. Let's go. And I'm trying to remember this dude's name and I can't. <laughs> it's sort of a bad boy Russian yeah. ballerino did uh, a routine to um, a contemporary piece and then they made a video of it. And so I'll find the creation. But I think part of what ballet suffers from is a lack of constructed uh, perspective, which is so common in how we understand things right now. But also it's, it's mostly set to music that is wonderful, gorgeous, beautiful, and not taught anything. So that people who are engaging with classical music don't really understand what's going on. But is it have a but taught? Like, and this is back to education. Like, what does taught mean? Because they're not exposed to it at the very least. Right. The mass audience, I don't think, is really that exposed to it. And when it is, it's like, here's this is going to help you go to sleep. <laughs> right? So it's like, I'm going to put Yo-Yo Ma on for my child in an effort to educate them. But really what I'm doing is teaching them to go to sleep when they hear cello. <laughs> Uh, and then I then I wonder why they fall asleep watching ballet. So that's hilarious. And I will also say 
the other piece of ballet is when it is when it has that magical reaction and again, just talking about exaggeration, like when you go to see the San Francisco uh, production of Nutcracker, it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. I mean, you're you're just amazed at what's happening in front of you. Not just the athleticism and grace of the dancers, but the the you know the snow on the ground upon which one ballerina actually slipped while we were there. Um, <laughs> and that was exciting too. That, that was, was exciting. Unexpected. And uh, that reminds me of how when Sebastopol Ballet does its Nutcracker, and you've got those fantastic little kids well, dressed up as okay, starfish. In, in all fairness, the person awesome. with whom I was having a conversation, like her, her daughter is, is um, becoming a you know studying ballet in college, and I think that she may have actually had, had something more sophisticated to say <laughs> than like our kids ballet boring. When, yeah. <laughs> well, I think what she meant was maybe they're not taking risks or they're not um, expanding the vocabulary or I mean I was actually saying that talking about how the San Francisco Ballet has um, started doing some cross-gender casting and things like that and um, she was excited about that so I think it was she wasn't just saying like okay we're all trained to fall asleep to cello <laughs> and so ballet is boring but I guess what I what I wanted to ask to, to talk about was sort of that that training to take something tremendously hard and then to make it seem easy, to make it seem mm -hmm. subtle. So that, you know, in, in this idea of exaggeration, where does subtlety come back in? I think you have to earn subtlety, right? It's just like what I was saying. Where, place it, there's a difference, I think, between being subtle and being masterful. I don't think in... Uh, Shakespeare's sonnets, he's always being subtle, but he's always being masterful. And when we see the, I mean, you can, I don't know about you, but like when I read some of his stuff, like you think, oh, that's easy. And then you sit down and you try to do it. And it's not subtle, right? It might be playful. It might be uh, romantic. It might be reflective, it might be any number of things, but you aren't sitting there wondering, I wonder how he feels. <laughs> right. Who's the bad guy? Yeah. Is there a bad guy? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, take... Oh my gosh, I, I think we should do like some send-up where it's like, it's Macbeth, but they just talk. Like, they just talk and they hash through political things and maybe they tweet, you know, alarming things out, but like nothing really changes <laughs> yeah i mean you look at shakespeare he's like you know he's got actors who are standing next to each other but one ostensibly can't hear the other and the one who's talking just tells the people in the audience i am now going to go into this other room where i am going to kill somebody i'm wondering if that's a good idea i have odd feelings about it but i'll be back and then the play resumes i mean there's nothing subtle in it and yet, it's still art. Well, and I think part of it is that there are just layers and layers. So, and even, you know, in a, in a production, even more so, right? You're every, somebody's thinking about the set, the props, the, and everything's going toward, um, toward the, the whole. And so there's the big, splashy, exaggerated pieces. And then there's, you know, every tiny thing under it is also supporting it. And that's where you can get subtlety. And in, and in writing, you know, so there's this, 
this scene happening, there's this conflict, and then the descriptions of the setting are also supporting the meaning and emotion of the, you know, of that, of those larger points. And the uh, the dialogue and the gestures and actions and all of those things are supporting the the bigger points. And so you, you get, you start to dig into layers of subtlety. Absolutely. And I just think, though, that with your, when, when you're writing a prose piece for which you are responsible uh, to your reader to make all of those choices, um, I just keep coming back to one of my favorite subtext exercises from Uh, story Robert McKee. No. Um, what's his bucket? Writing David fiction. Mamet. Oh, John Gardner. Yes. Yes. And it's that barn. You know it. Damn it's barn. Damn barn. But I think it's you so know what it is. Just to say, in case we haven't said it a hundred times, is um, write the exercise is write about you could write a description of a barn from the point of view of an old man whose son has just been killed at war. Do not mention the son. Or death or war. So you're just describing a barn and you're and you're not signaling to the reader. I mean that's the sort of the first sort of amateur approach is let me signal death, right? But the barn was like a coffin, right? But then the ne- then you're sort of okay, so you're digging into it's it's sort of the method acting part of like, okay, how do you see a barn? on the day that your son, you know, that you've gotten this terrible news, what details do you notice? And it might even be that you notice something beautiful about it. You know what I mean? That you notice something that is, that is the opposite of death and war, right? So, but you just have to sort of sink into that. Absolutely. And, and, and at the same time, when you're doing it, you're not trying to hide, I mean, you're not talking about those two things. Um, and what's interesting is the way that you would get to some of those beautiful things is if you were to take grief and push it and then write. Exactly. So you're exaggerating the grief. I, in what sense? So what, what do you mean exactly? Well, if you're, if you're writing about, if you're describing something and you've given yourself a constraint, yay, constraints, not to explicitly refer to the main driving you actually have to find something to exaggerate. Something is going to stick out more than anything else. And I think the first time you do the exercise, you would be writing about cobwebs and ravens, you know, fall leaves and mulch, things like that. <laughs> the and red like blood. Right. And then as you continue, you would say, okay, if I was going to push this even further, well, what, what happens what happens if I push this further? And you might end up at springtime. Barn that has stood for generations. Right? The children playing in the winter. And all of the hope that came from that um, juxtaposed against one shadow. Or even just thinking about the shadow of the children. But the idea is you take the thing and you keep pushing it further than than your original idea because our original ideas generally not always but generally are not that interesting 
or they're just accessible to everybody. And so part of the work and what you of want the to artist, do is make them inaccessible. Well, <laughs> part of the yeah, part of the work of the artist is to make it. No, part of the work of the artist is to dig into the things that are still inside all of us, but that we don't let ourselves access all the time. And that could be the non-cliched description or the emotion or whatever. Right. And so this exercise gets us into scene, right? So if you're if you're pushing that exaggeration, and I've talked about the unexpected, if you're pushing the unexpected, the outcome that you anticipate, um, and, and McKee does talk about this a certain amount, right? So he talks about the shape of the scene and talking about pushing, um, but when you think about, okay, so someone's going into the scene and, he, you know, uh, it's someone who wants to apologize and expects to be forgiven. Okay. And, you know, going in there, um, you know, you have a couple of choices. The expected choices, the non-exaggerated choices would be, she's forgiven. Or... She's not forgiven. Right. So then if you were to say, okay, I'm going to exaggerate this and push it. What happens if she's forgiven more? Not only have I forgiven you, but I think this means you want to marry me. (laughs) Much more interesting problem. (laughs) Yes. Not only am I not forgiving you, but I'm going to kill your buddy. Or I'm going to tell you, you look bad in that outfit. So, uh, (laughs) anyway. Less exaggerated. Less exaggerated. But you see what I'm saying. The idea is to take the idea of what you expect and push it. I'm really excited about this because I'm going to be teaching scene at Sonoma County Writers Camp in October. And I really want to play with some of this stuff. With, you know, not only obviously what your character wants, but what your character expects. And then, um, and then, you know, exaggeration and moving, you know, and, and playing with possible outcomes and all of that. It's really fun. Well, that's the importance of art. All right. Well, since we've gotten to and wrapped up the importance of art, let's do our steal this uh, uh, amateur poets borrow. Professional poets steal. What have said you? T.S. Eliot. What have you? And many others. <laughs> and whomever he stole it from. Why does that just never get old to me? Anyway, uh, why, what have you come across lately in your wanderings and readings and viewings and things that you would like to take, make your own? You go first. All right. So I have been listening to the audiobook of Dark Places by Gillian Flynn. And um, this character is actually, almost all the characters are deeply flawed. Um, and in some ways could be potentially like very unsuccessful. No, no. And I think this is actually what I'm getting to. She makes them sympathetic, um, even though, and, he, and even I would say likable. I mean, I'm enjoying, um, especially the main character, quite a bit, uh, even though I think she would probably be somewhat insufferable because she really needs to grow and change. But you understand why she hasn't. And, um, but more than that, she is. Um, she understands, well, she understands how flawed she is. She understands the, um, her own limitations and she's kind of funny about it. And, um, that is, so I'm really digging into 
why how does she do this how does she take these characters because you have to have characters who are flawed and you know exaggeratedly flawed right i mean so this is a, this is a situation where your um where the the character's whole family was was murdered when she was a small child and she's the only survivor and she's been living off of the funds that were raised for this poor child um and periodically you know on her 16th birthday or whatever more funds would be raised but now she's in her 30s and no no more nobody's donating money to her cause anymore and she's run out of the money that was raised and she's kind of so it's like and yet she's kind of uh, not helped herself at all like she you know what i mean she's she's really stuck and there's a way in which it's really unsympathetic but you're totally rooting for her to to shake things up to get to the next place you know what i mean and and so i just anyway so i want to learn how to make really flawed characters and make them really sympathetic without sanding off their edges right Let, instead they they hang a lantern on their edges they have a, a kind of a witty self-awareness these techniques that allow um us to understand and sympathize with them even as we're just dying for them to change all right yeah how about you well i'm having a maybe i don't want to steal this instead of a steal this okay um so i have been listening to mike mccallowitz's uh new book clockwork which is about kind of setting up your business in a particular way to help it run more efficiently and um, to really focus on key uh, value drivers. Uh, and actually, I, I think that um, there's a lot that's really interesting about it. But I feel like we're in this world right now where the idea that we can... I, I'm stuck between these two, so I don't know what to steal. Uh, that we live in this world where the idea is that we can create fast, quickly. You know, just we're going to... You can make a video a week, and a video a week is worth watching. Language. Sorry, beep. Um, <laughs> anyway. Or, right, right. So we have these things, you know, where, you know, write your novel in this month, right? Which is, which is great in some ways, like as an exercise. And certainly we've all heard the stories about people who do this, but you don't hear about people who are writing month after month. Right. Well, you, novel, write your month novel, after you write your draft in a month, maybe, and then you spend, you know, a couple of years making it worthwhile for someone else to read. So, but these are the things I'm caught between. One of the things that you often hear is, you know, you hear these, um, so people are like, you know, have the place where you sit every day and work. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, Barbara Oakley, who is uh, someone I really appreciate uh, and also has a book called Mind for Numbers. She's got a new one out about kids, uh, for kids, about how to learn. Uh, one of the things is actually you don't go to the same place over and over if you want to learn. And so the idea that you need to both generate a routine and keep it unusual enough to uh, activate your capacity to learn. So is, is uh, you know, writing, learning, is writing routine what is the art that we're pursuing um, and what, what are the actions associated with this? 
So, and some of this is going to be so personality dependent, right? Like you are somebody who is not going to want to be in the same place every day. And I am somebody who is going to want to be in the same place. Every right. Day. But, shout out to Judy showing <laughs> And the thing that we are doing, though, I think about Barbara King Solver saying, I, I write by having a question I want to kind of repeat it. So there's a learning aspect. Absolutely. And whether there's a personality piece, but there's also studies that show having a super, super consistent place, like going to the library every day and going and sitting in the same carol every time you go to study actually decreases your ability to take in new information. I mean, I will say that I don't get, I will, I can write anywhere I need to. Um, and I certainly don't have a life that sort of is, is enables that level of routine. But um, I would also say that, you know, when I'm sitting and reading, some new, the new issue of the New Yorker or some book or listening to something while I'm yet again washing the dishes, the thing I'm taking in or writing something new is new, is entirely new. And so in that way, my imaginatively, I'm, I'm somewhere else. Always. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, so that's what I'm sitting between. I'm I sitting between it. these ideas of having super consistent systems in place to do your artistic work and these other notions of learning that are really about how how variety increases your capacities, right? One of the studies that was in uh, Barbara Oakley's book was about how uh, they took kids and they said, oh, great, we're going to spend 15 minutes a day throwing paper wads into a garbage can. And we're going to have one group of kids always stand three feet away. And we're going to have one group of kids move back and forth. Two feet, three feet, four feet. Completely arbitrary, moving around. And what they found when they then tested, and I'm, I'm making air quotes, but you can't see them. When they tested the kids who um, stood in the same place. Stood in this, well, both sets of kids. The accuracy of the kids who uh, had variation mm -hmm. was much higher. It, it's, is, is she also the one with the study with the ceramics? Where the, the group of kids who were asked to just produce as much as possible, and they were going to be they were going to be graded by weight, and the kids who had to who were going to be graded on some particular piece or the quality of their pieces, and the the kids who were going to be graded by weight did much learned much more and and gained many more skills and all of that, right? So, right. but ultimately, and I just want to leave everybody with this: the, all of this gives you permission to really support what works for you and to not mess around with. Trying to become a different person. It. Yeah. Trying to do it a different way. Do what works for you and just keep doing it so that you're actually... Or change it up if that's yeah, what works for you. Right. But, but, but do the creative thing that you love. Um, do that. And however it looks and however it changes and however it fits in and all of that, you know, that's the part we're getting to. And, and move the drama from changing who you are and doing it differently into the drama of like creating. Thank you.